0: And good evening. You've tuned in to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, not to be confused with our sister show on Friday morning at 8.30 a.m. It is indeed Monday afternoon and it's Labor Day in Melbourne, so if you were lucky enough or unlucky enough not to be working today, I hope you've had a good one. We've got a fascinating show, as usual, coming up tonight. Vivian was in Manly in February for the Energy Efficiency Conference and there's some fascinating outlooks there from other cities cities in the world and other countries who uh, take a completely different view of the need to be green. First up I'm going to play a short community announcement and then uh, I'll throw to Viv who'll give you a uh, introduction to the energy efficiency, Con- efficiency conference and then the seminar on adaptation at the New University of New South Wales that she went to on your behalf to bring the the gems of uh, the pearls of wisdom to you. So sit back and relax or bustle around as you listen to another fascinating show on behalf of the environment.
1: Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves.
0: Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle.
1: News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised
2: by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Tonight we report from the Energy Efficiency Conference I went to in Manly and then a seminar on adaptation at the University of New South Wales. It became very clear that countries without fossil fuels are far more motivated to get their usage down. They want energy security, they're frightened of peak oil, and some of the less developed countries are streaking ahead as they generate solar, wind and hydropower at home rather than depending on imports. Australia, with its fossil fuel companies influencing policy, is making a lot of people very angry. There was a lot of talk at the seminar about how we must not be taken for a ride in the upcoming election. In that axe the tax era and the pink bat scandal era, tabloids framed our thinking and frightened off the bold move, we need to use Uh, We need to use less energy and to source it from renewables. So let's not be bamboozled again. One good idea to stop the disgrace of energy poverty in Australia was to make energy an essential service with no disconnections for people in winter who can't afford to heat their homes at the moment. The basic amount would be free and excess usage would be charged at top dollar. Smart meters and devices would help us all decrease our usage. I thought that was a good idea. And then we heard how Californians have halved their consumption and their costs, and how other countries have far higher fuel efficiency standards for their cars, which they dump on our market because our regulations are low. We heard about the people of Zurich and how other parts of Switzerland, who voted to conscientiously make it easier for people to emit less carbon. They have efficient meters, passive houses, efficient public transport, and local eco holidays, apparently in some parts it 's even a bit of a shame if you have a car you 're afraid to admit it. If the average American uses ten thousand tons of c o two per year, the Zurich citizen aims to use about a thousand, and they 've used all their creativity and community pride to get there it 's hard to convey more than a toast a taste of these two conferences. But there's news here from Thailand, from Switzerland, from Germany and from the team at We Mean Business, who help transnational businesses in Asia and the Pacific to meet the decarbonisation goals of Paris. Um, I'm at UTS University in Sydney to talk about energy efficiency in Thailand. It's also about uh, financing energy efficiency, and I think you might be surprised, listeners, to hear what you do here. Verena Streitfeld is with us on the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and she's a PhD candidate at this university. Verena, would you mind telling me about a little bit about yourself, your experience mm. in Southeast Asia generally, and what led you to Thailand?
1: Okay, well, I think I started working actually in Indonesia. That was my first experience with Southeast Asia for an international development corporation called GIZ. And that was more on resource efficiency um, in industries and uh, some more the brown environment sector. And that's basically where I first started to discover the win-win solutions for businesses when they adopt not just energy efficiency but resource efficiency into their business and why being in a developing country this is so promising because obviously the whole debate always with environment and climate change is well in developing countries there will be so much more further um, you know environmental problems so therefore to find a solution to say well countries obviously still need to develop but they need to do it perhaps in a better way than we industrialized countries have done originally I'm from Mm -hmm. Germany I think it's really important and that's why I I love the topic so much Mm -hmm. Um, and basically after I finished working I wanted to further explore that but more on a deeper level, I guess, than mm. when you do when you're working. Mm. And that's why I ended up here as a PhD candidate and exploring, now focusing more on energy efficiency, specifically on Thailand.
2: Okay. Well, look, at the conference, uh, I met Verena at Manly. There was a conference on energy efficiency. People there were talking about energy efficiency. It's not a sexy term. We don't, can't say this word anymore, energy efficiency. Nobody wants to know about it. I think of, well, high star rating on appliances, insulating your house. It's sort of dull. Mm. And um, But at the conference, they're starting to use a new term, which they said was much more sexy and probably more appealing to the media, called energy productivity. Why this shift?
1: Well, I think, actually, it's not just so much about attracting to the media, but mainly about policymakers. So, actually, I think this term got um, originated from the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. The Alliance for Energy Efficiency there really propagated that term with the government to adopt energy efficiency into their policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, there was also um, an example given that, you know, one of these kind of lead negotiators with the government, before that new term came up, that he was called the Mr. Potential, because energy efficiency is invisible, it's really complicated, it's not sexy. But then once it got, you know, kind of reframed into energy productivity, all of a sudden he was the person to talk to because he's talking about, you know, it's all also encompassing the idea about growth, that it's not about, you know, savings, but it's about growing further, but in a smarter way. It's about modernization. It's about, so this new term really encapsulates a much broader field than just energy efficiency as well. Well,
2: what, what does it summon up for you, not just star-rated appliances?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and I think also this term gets obviously redefined by different people, but for me it means that you actually look into optimising um, you know, your industrial um, and, you know, economic growth in a way that is most energy productive. So that also encompasses in a way not just the savings, but also in terms of how you perhaps um, devise your new energy sources. So there was a discussion at the conference about if renewables should be included. To me, I think that would make sense, because if you energy productivity is such a more broader term as well. Um and therefore, I think it has so much more potential to actually reach into, you know, discussions and policy making about actually energy security, energy systems, and not just being this little environmental, uh, you know, climate change freak uh, term, energy efficiency, we need to do it. Um, and I think that's how actually it was very successful in the US to then be adopted via the new government of Obama, you know, signing a lot of the pledges that the Alliance for Energy Efficiency has made before.
2: Well, I've, I've heard a lot of people, especially in Germany, saying, that energy efficiency is the sort of silent partner. Yes. It's, it's not just putting in renewable energy, it's reducing the amount of energy you use. Yes. And I think company, countries that import energy, as Germany does gas and coal, they import it and other countries that import are much more motivated. Australia yes. is not motivated because we've got this cheap coal and gas now. So what message do you have to us, say to us in Australia about embracing this new energy productivity?
1: Well, um, I think it hopefully meets the government's um, you know, admire, admiration to modernize and to keep the industry competitive. And I think Australia also now, I think they just put out a, a new call for boom for innovation and new ideas. And I think energy productivity could fall into this kind of new innovation, mm-hmm. technological innovation theme. So um, I think that's why I think it's probably a better term. I think Australia in general really needs to look internationally and what other countries are doing. And, for example, also at that conference, somebody from the U.S. was providing a graph which was so drastic about coal industry in U.S. and basically showed how the coal price has plummeted. And obviously, in Australia, it's a different thing, and obviously, you have different exports mm. and different customers. But on the long term, I think Australia really needs to reflect that international people are moving towards a coal-less-intensive industry, mm. and needs to diversify the economy if you know for the future they should they want to be you know, resilient and uh, and being able mm-hmm. to to serve a society um, with their economic growth.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, we're talking about other societies, so I'd like you to fill us in, mm-hmm. uh, listeners. Uh, Verena Streitfeld w- went to Thailand and she was uh, gave a talk at the uh, energy efficiency conference. A case study on financing energy productivity. Tell us now on the radio.
1: Yes, <laughs> and I'm very happy I can do this. Um, so first of all, I choose Thailand from Southeast Asian countries because they were quite progressive with their energy efficiency policies. So since 1992, they already um, implemented energy conservation measures and I was particularly interested in measures that supported the financial side of things because energy efficiency is very hard to finance the project because it's high upfront costs which customers or building owners normally are not very willing to do. So Thailand has implemented some public measures like an energy efficiency revolving fund which provided lending for banks to implement um, energy efficiency projects, which was quite successful, and I just drew up some of the lessons learned. And um, actually at the conference, it was really interesting to see, because I was on the same panel as the Australian, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which mainly is doing a similar thing than this fund had been doing, but trying to do it a little bit more supportive rather than actually providing grant money because actually this mechanism is providing, has to work on a profit basis. Mm. So that really um, then encourages the financial sector to develop very innovative tools, which I think Thailand didn't do so much. Mm. But So it was very interesting that actually Thailand is not that far behind Australia, but also Mm. that there can be lessons learned either way. Um, And so I think that actually gave me, for finishing my PhD, quite a nice aha moment to see the relevance of my case study in Thailand in the broader
2: picture. Well, maybe Can we just slow down? Take us to Thailand. Yeah. What do you mean? You work with a company, you find out how they're financed, or mm. just with government organisations, I'd like to know something more specific, yeah, you yeah. know, just let's slow down a bit.
1: Okay, so for example, uh, in Thailand, if you, as a building owner, you would like to implement some energy efficiency measures, there are certain incentive mechanisms from the government that you can draw upon. Um, so some are very grant-focused, so they just means you, have, you want to, for example, put a new air conditioning system, and the government might finance 20% of that investment. Mm-hmm. That's just a grant program. That doesn't really incentivize you still have to get the 80% for the investment from a bank or from a leasing Mm. company, and they have very strict regulations on how to get that money. So therefore, these new mechanisms are more geared towards the banks, that they actually get out of their comfort zone and provide finance for something they don't have so much experience in, like an air-conditioning system. Um, So therefore, the bank actually gets an incentive to provide that loan to that building owner. So when the building owner wants to get a loan, they get it on competitive rates. Yeah. Um, what what I kind of found with my research is that it's still not strong enough for the financial sector to really, um, to really discover that as a market niche and therefore to develop that further. So once the government subsidy stops, mm. the bank also stops to provide that service. So there needs to be more enabling framework conditions for the banks to provide that service, like a guarantee mechanism or um, like other technology trainings for the banks um, or some kind of um, a de-risk mechanism so if that lending to the business owner for example gets a default because the air conditioning breaks down that the bank Get somehow a refund from government or some other source mm. so that they can take the risks to do that lending.
2: Can you tell us a bit in terms of the climate change um, mm. challenge that we all faced? What what is um, Thailand's government doing about that? Are mm. they do they have a climate change minister? Are they doing these grants to get efficiencies just so that they lower the amount of uh, coal fired power they use? I don't even know what mm. the source of their energy is there. What's the motive and and what's what? Uh, how are they? Going going along in terms of climate?
1: Well, actually, that's really interesting because I started out my research with a climate focus and I moved into the energy focus after Mm. experiencing the motivation in Thailand. So I think, and that's also interesting, I think, um, in general, that I think in those developing emerging countries, I mean, their main concern is energy security, and that's the driving factor in Thailand. They are very highly importing energy resources, um, and therefore they would like, and then experiencing, you know, peak oil crisis, they want to get um, less energy dependent. So, that's their primary focus. However, obviously, the international agenda is driving them to also recognize the climate change aspect. And it's very interesting that most of their energy reduction targets mainly are translated into the climate sphere. So, their climate strategy, which they have... um, However, consists mainly out of the energy targets and the transportation targets. Mm-hmm. And these are mainly taken from the sectoral plans. Um, so I would say they are, they are aware and they are working towards that, but I think the driver is a very different one. And I think if we want to reach out into those countries, we need to understand what their main motivation is, and it is energy security. However, that can still achieve a lot of climate change goals like you know mitigation goals i think
2: are they moving towards renewable energy as a key source
1: um yes they do actually they have so in thailand they have a 25 percent energy intensity reduction target until 2030 and a 25 percent renewable energy um target until 2030 as well so um and that is mainly by the I would say it's also barely influenced by lobbying groups on renewable energy um, that have been quite successful in, in the corporation. There has been a feed-in tariff for renewables in Thailand, mm-hmm. um, which has been more or less successive, and there has been um, a lot of um, discussion around that. Um, so they are definitely not just looking on energy efficiency, but also on renewables and mainly anything to get them less dependent on fossil fuels, which is their main source, not so much for the electricity, but for the transportation sector.
2: Okay. Do you know where they import their in, um, fuels from?
1: Well, partly, for example, from Myanmar. And uh, with them being um, developing as they are at the moment, obviously they understand that probably Myanmar will soon need their own energy resources and will yeah. not export it to them anymore. Um, so that's part, I think, um, one of, that's one part, I think, of the problems. Obviously, the fossil fuels, they... Um, I think, also mainly get it from the OPEC countries,
2: yeah. Okay. When I was in that region recently, that's last year, there was a lot in the newspaper about a high-speed rail from China. I don't remember which city in China, but right through Laos, mm. right through Thailand and right down to Singapore. What a marvellous thing, I thought, if it was on renewable energy. Do you know anything else about projects like that that are in, in uh, planning? Mm.
1: Not really in particular. I just, I mean, I think I would also like to say that in general, you see in Southeast Asia massive progress towards leapfrogging, um, you know, with this kind of attempts or innovation. I mean, one thing I think there's a lot of about the mega cities, and there are a lot of initiatives and projects around how to make cities most resource efficient. And, I mean, if you look into China, but also if you look into Thailand or Indonesia, there are very... Um, Interesting approaches emerging in terms of you know smart metering, even transportation, um, you know electric cars and all the rest. So I think I find it very fascinating that I mean a region which kind of was far behind, or if many people would say you know is still far behind, I see them really developing very innovative measures um, to you know overcome the challenges. And they might not be necessarily driven by climate change, but by overpopulation, energy security. But will meet the climate change goals. Um.
2: Thank you very much. So that was Verena Streitfeld at UTS in Sydney.
0: Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live
3: to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 8377
2: and become an organisational subscriber. Show Show your love, love. 3CR. Thank
4: you.
2: I'm um, at University of New South Wales and I've met Associate Professor Alastair Sproul. He's with us tonight because I uh, talked to him at the Energy Efficiency Conference at Manly last week, and uh, I thought he had some very interesting ideas. So welcome, Alistair. What aspect of climate challenge are you working on?
4: Well, yeah, Vivian, thanks very much for coming in. Um, Good to talk to you. Yeah, look, I'm working on all sorts of things, so mainly working on renewable energy systems, how they integrate with buildings, building efficiency and efficient energy system so for example pool pumps is is an area that's of interest to me
2: right what's what's the new thing on pool pumps
4: well we're actually doing a project through the crc for low carbon living uh, which is looking at um, solar pool heating uh, is quite a big energy user as is pool as our pools filtering Mm -hmm. and so we've been able to take a typical solar pool heater And instead of consuming six kilowatt hours a day of electricity, we can run it with a variable speed pump or a three speed pump. We can run that system. We have to do a few tricks, but we can run that system and only use one kilowatt hour of energy. So, yeah.
2: At the conference, people were saying things like energy efficiency is not sexy. Reducing our energy is not so front of mind for the public as moving uh, over to renewable energy, for example. What can you say in defence of energy efficiency to mobilise people to get on board with it?
4: Look, I think I'm a big fan of energy efficiency, uh, but I think it is difficult for people to... People may want to do something about their energy usage. But they may have difficulty doing that, maybe just through lack of knowledge.
2: What about for big companies operating a lot of machinery, using a lot of electricity? I mean, surely it's beneficial to them to cut it back.
4: Oh, yes, it is. And and I think you'll find that a lot of big companies these days are, uh, over the last few years, electricity prices have gone up. That's probably been the best thing Mm -hmm. ever for driving people to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. So big companies as well. I mean, what I would always like to see, of course, is... uh, Residential, commercial, industry—look at longer paybacks. We often look at quite short payback times, maybe two years or less. If we could find ways of encouraging businesses and, and owners of homes and businesses to to do more mm. um, with longer payback, that's always the challenge, I think.
2: Okay. Well, let's talk about energy at the city level. Mm. At the conference, you mentioned um, several cities that you've been in. Involved with. <clears throat> we have urban sprawl in Australia. But in Zurich, they have strict city limits. We had a speaker there from Zurich, and they want to preserve their farmland, whereas we just keep sprawling out. Melbourne and Sydney are just yes. ridiculous, beautiful farmland being swallowed up by houses. <coughs> How will sort of disruptive energy systems influence Australian cities?
4: The city that I, uh, I spent some time in many years ago was Freiburg in Germany, and I was impressed by the German planning authorities. Mm. They do not allow cities to grow bigger than their traditional boundaries. Now, that's a very interesting concept because that means that there's green space between a city and the next town Mm. and the next village and so on. People are able to, you know, enjoy living. Mm. There can be regions of high density or medium density, but let's not just sprawl it everywhere. I think that is a big mistake. Mm. And Australia, we really need (laughs) to tackle that. I think we are driven too often by uh, less by the needs of the general public and more by the dollar
2: beyond zero emissions is very keen on high-speed rail and we've published a report you know showing exactly how it could happen and exactly what it would cost one of the side benefits at least of that would be that regional cities like shepparton and goulburn and newcastle would then grow and because they're linked up with the high-speed rail do you see any other infrastructure like that would we should create a sort of more efficient uh, sort of cityscape like the european model
4: I think so. I think that's correct. I think uh, the European cities and, and countries where there's high-speed rail, they really, it can really help uh, people's mobility. If there are jobs uh, half an hour away by high-speed rail or an hour away by high-speed rail, um, you can live quite a, a distance from uh, where you're working and living. But, I mean, if, it, it, it is great if we can live and work close to where we are. That would be preferable. But if not, um, then I think we really do need to tackle this idea of, um, you know, high-speed rail. I think it's a great idea. In a Sydney context, we have four and a half million people in Sydney and we're heading towards another million Mm -hmm. over the next decade or so, whatever that will be. I question that and I ask, I I wonder, what about Newcastle? What about Wollongong? What about other surrounding cities? If there was a high-speed rail link, particularly to Canberra as well. It would be an interesting one. It's a very slow train trip at the present mm-hmm. time. Uh, we should be we should be looking at these sorts of models. Why do we not have high speed trains?
2: Yeah, well, we're living in a carbon constrained world. The oil, I hope the oil will finally fizzle out. But um, we need to put in some infrastructure like that. And actually, you might be interested in reading the Beyond Zero Rail Plan because those cities' distances apparently ideal. Yes, you know, and to take the aeroplane traffic out of the air. Great, but. Um, Meanwhile, we are in dense cities and I wonder, we've been talking about your expertise in technology. What about, you put in a solar roof but the neighbour builds a two-storey house beside you and shades your roof. How, how are we doing well in that in urban planning, do you think, to guard our access to the sun? Because it's, it, I think it could become a contested thing, a bit like water in the future.
4: Yes, look, I think you're right. I, I don't think we are doing well in Australia. I think the the um sudden sort of surge of australian homes having solar panels on their roof that's a very recent phenomena mm. and i think it'll take a little bit of time for urban planning to catch up to that at the moment i think we have some weakish de- and it depends very much on the council mm. and we have some weakish um, planning controls in that would uh you know stop uh, a higher story development on your north for, for example shading mm. your windows or your roof. At this point in time, there's no protection. No real mention of shading your roof. If you shade someone's roof well, um, you know there's there's nothing there's nothing really in the planning controls that I've seen. Someone at the conference mentioned that in Canberra they have. Um, Thought about this and acting on this. Mm-hmm. So I think perhaps we need to look at what Canberra is doing, mm-hmm. see how it plays out there, and see if there's the good and the bad of that. Um, but I think, yeah, we do need to really think carefully about um, how we plan our cities and, and um, yeah, let's yeah. not shade the solar panels. No, <laughs> because we keep
2: talking about disruptive technology, but, you know, we should be able to manage these transitions. You know, I, I feel there's a kind of madness here. Also, heritage laws. A lot of people have mentioned if they live in inner Sydney or inner Melbourne. And they can't put the solar panels on because of their heritage values.
4: Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, another challenge. That's another challenge. Um, there are products uh, in other parts of the world, not so much in Australia, that are looking at can we integrate solar panels in such a way with the roof line that um, maintains heritage values and um, so that's an interesting one so a lot of European cities um, would, ha- would have this yes. issue yes. Um, and so it is possible but we, we need to we need to explore that further in terms of finding good commercial products at, at a reasonable price because if you start going down that pathway it can add a little to the price but still worth having a look.
2: Yeah, well, that's interesting. And I think you mentioned another very interesting thing at the Energy Efficiency uh, Summer School. It, one was a French-sounding name, but in Germany, a town called Vauban. And the other one was in South Australia called Lochiel Park. And they were model townships, I gathered from you. Can you describe those for the radio listeners?
4: Sure. Look, so the uh, the one in Germany, Vauban, I'm probably mispronouncing the french it was originally a, a garrison if you like where the french soldiers were uh, stationed after the second world war and they were there till about 1992 now after 1992 the german city of freiburg uh, had this old um, french army base and needed to wanted to do something with it and so some People from within the Freiburg community went to the city with the plans to build uh, a sustainable district within Freiburg. Now, Freiburg's very famous uh, from a sustainability point of view, and the Fauban is really the sort of um, most famous region in that city and the greenest uh, uh, part of that city. So it's quite an amazing place to visit. Um, I visited there last November visited some friends of mine who happened to live there and uh, they gave me a tour around their around their district and it's great it's you know it's three four stories the buildings are separated so that there's good solar access for winter uh, there's green space there's pedestrian access there's bicycle paths kids can play there's vegetable gardens very few cars good public transport uh, it, it had a had a wonderful feel to it um mm. Yeah, so that's the sort of development that I think is possible when you have when you plan your cities yeah. to say, look, we need to give um, buildings access to the sun. We need to have rooftops not being shaded by their neighbours. Freiburg is an interesting place in that no building can be higher than the cathedral, the spire of the cathedral. And so they keep the heights down. And in a, in a district like Valban, they... Um, give people solar access so it's a it's a great it's a great example i think yeah.
2: hmm. i think it's a similar sort of consciousness as the people at zurich that we heard about also it's like a whole they voted in zurich to have a lower to lower their carbon footprint and it sounds like the freiburg people are consciously doing that too perhaps their media perhaps their education is different what do you think
4: uh, i think it all has to do with where you get your fossil fuels from <laughs> so it, 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 for example in germany uh, in Germany, long ago, they closed down their um, coal mines because it was, they were quite uneconomic. Mm. And so they, if they are going to buy in coal, they buy in coal on the international market. So they're importing coal. They import gas. They import oil. Mm. So you can see that in a, a society like Germany, saving energy is, is good for their country yes. and, and lowering their carbon footprint and moving towards technologies that perhaps are being developed with German technology and backing, Mm. then they can see that that's a good thing for their economy. Uh, It gets a little bit uh, more difficult in a country like Australia or Saudi Arabia, where, you know, we're Australia's second biggest coal exporter in the world. So we Mm. think, why should we be saving energy, you see? Mm. So this is, I think this is part of the challenge of Australia. Mm. But um, I I will keep simply saying that uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency are the Uh, is the way forward and and we should be going that way as quickly as we can. And in fact, saving energy is far more economic than investing in coal, for example. And Mm -hmm. the reason being is that if we save energy, we're competing with retail electricity prices, which are now, Australia has some of the highest retail electricity prices in the world. On the other hand, we have some of the lowest wholesale prices in the world. So the return on investment for a coal-fired power station is Mm -hmm. very low only about one cent in three cents per kilowatt hour it goes to the coal miners, Uh, whereas if we can save energy, we might be saving 20 to 25 cents a kilowatt hour. So there's far more jobs um, and far more profit in being energy efficient.
2: So that was Associate Professor Alice Desperal from the University of New South Wales. Mm -hmm. Good evening, listeners. We have a, I'm at the Energy Efficiency Conference here, and I've found somebody from Switzerland, Martina Blum, who is an energy expert from the city of Zurich, which I'm very fond of that city and the whole city, country of Switzerland, and I knew they would be advanced in this, but someone put me on to her and said, talk to her because she knows all about how advanced they are in Zurich. So, Martina, what did you tell the conference? Mm. Um, I'm here with the Swiss Embassy, and
3: um, they brought us because we have this concept called 2,000 Watt Society, It's um, energy politics um, concept, and it means that everybody on Earth should be able to live on two thousand watt. Right now, we are in Europe around six thousand, North America ten thousand watt, and um, yeah just uh, it's a concept based on global fairness so that everybody should have the same amount of energy to have a good um life
2: yeah i've heard of that that's a marvelous thing how do how do they get such a low wattage for one citizen
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah we are not right there we are we started 10 years ago with uh, around 5200 we are at 4200 so we it's the goal um till 2050. We want to get to 2,500 actually. So um, yeah, there are different ways. The really important ones are that we change our energy systems uh, completely. So we, in Switzerland, the electricity part uh, from nuclear will be replaced with wind and solar energy. And for the heating, we need lots of heating in the winter, which is based 85% on oil and gas. We are going to change to renewable energy which is locally available for example uh, heat from the river or the lake or waste heat from data center or waste heat uh, from the sewage plant so we really try to see um, which areas of the city could be provided with uh, different kinds of renewable energies
2: I like the idea because the idea of each citizen being responsible for their own carbon footprint I think pro- we, we talk always about big government doing things but really the citizens if they're conscious of their footprint they'll be behind you in the innovations so what, what have they what have you done in the Zurich
3: Right. So I was more talking about the big government thing now, uh, but also the number, like two thousand. What it it brings it down on a personal level, as you as you said, and the city they just can facilitate this and they can build areas in the city where people really can live and work together and don't have to go out for in their free time but find good places to to live like a forest or or a garden where they can spend that that their free time so really the cities should enable uh, it that people can live without cars and they can have good public transportation and uh, And that, yeah, they don't have to to drive a car far to to do what they want to do.
2: Mm. Well, years ago, I lived in Switzerland, and I thought the public transport was pretty good then. The trams were good in the city, and the city didn't sprawl out like Australian cities. Is that a conscious thing, that you try to contain the city within a sort of limit? It
3: definitely is because it's it's a land use issue and people also, they, they want to conserve their land that's not built yet. Uh, but nevertheless, already uh, three quarters of our kilometers in town, we do by, by public transport or bicycle, but still we are not yet at the 2,000 watts. So mm-hmm. we really need to... Um, yeah, to to provide a better quality of life in the city, even better. And uh, there's another... Actually, I haven't mentioned that 2,000 watts is part of our city constitution. Mm-hmm. And another goal in our city constitution is also that we limit um, the part of the, of the individual traffic and uh, and bring it to public transport and bicycle.
2: Mm. Well, the name of our program is Beyond Zero Emissions. So the idea of the carbon that we've emitted so far has to be drawn down as well. And it sounds like cities like that, if all cities were trying to get that to that level of 2,000 watts per citizen, I don't know how that translates into carbon emissions, but it sounds like... You know, we would be able to start drawing down. Do you have that, um, that goal as well, to draw down the carbon that's emitted? Exactly. Um, it's just called 2,000 Watt. It has
3: two goals. It's the Watt goal, so reducing energy, energy efficiency. Uh, but the second goal is one tonne CO2 per person, which is um, per year. So just uh, by, for example, going from Australia to Europe and back is 2.5 tons CO2. So it definitely involves also a change in lifestyle, um, which is a bit harder to communicate mm-hmm. to the public. But at, at, at the end, it's down to the individual. Everybody can do the math, and we have calculators on, for that online too, so then everybody can calculate what their lifestyle is doing on, on the environment, basically. Right now, we are each of the citizens in Zurich, um, if everybody on earth would live like this, we would need three times our planet. Mm. So we really have to reduce it, being it efficiency, being it a substitution or being it living more yeah, sustainable way.
2: Well, you mentioned the word before, sufficiency, and I'd like to know a bit about that because if we're going to live in that way, there won't be too many people going to international conferences or especially international holidays or, you know, short, surely there'll be some planes flying, but not in the increasing number that they are now. Yeah, you're right. And
3: it's nothing really we can control in a free market. And this is good, uh, obviously, that we are in a free market. So it's nothing we want to control by, by law or something. But it's it's really uh, the responsibility of the individual, especially in the Western countries. So if we go on vacation, we we have to think maybe in our country, maybe Australia or maybe Switzerland, they're really nice places we can go and spend our time and our vacation. And there are big programs also with in Switzerland, for example, with WWF and different resources trying, um, you know, to get people and say, we are carbon neutral, come by train, and we also our town, our resort town in, in the mountains is, is carbon neutral. So that really try to, to get people to spend their vacation there. And we have a recommendation from our federal government. It's not that you can't fly anymore, but maybe do it every third year that you go on vacation by, mm-hmm. by plane and, and try t- the other years to spend it... Um, within the year you're, where you're living.
2: Yeah. Is, is this a system that you've pioneered in Zurich, is this spreading to the rest of the Confederation of Switzerland? Yeah, actually um, it's been developed
3: more than 20 years ago at the uh, Technical University in Zurich, in ETH, and it's been adopted by many cities now. And right now it's even a national program, so we want other cities and towns to follow it. Mm-hmm and um, it's quite well accepted uh, also within the building industry so when they construct buildings they also try to look at the energy that's embodied for example in the building materials when they build these buildings and um, so it's really well um, accepted in Switzerland mm-hmm.
2: well, on, a, on a personal note what has it done for you to be in this sort of area you must have done a lot of thinking and a lot of reading and meeting people innovative people here in australia i mean no no in your life i you mean No, i hope in australia you've <laughs> met a few innovative people but i think it is a space which not everybody knows about and and it's future it's for the future
3: yeah actually it was one of the reason why i came to work with the city of zurich because they had this really Goal that is very advanced, very far looking. It's kind of a vision, a long term vision, which is important if you take decisions today. So, yeah, it was really inspiring. I learned, I learn a lot every day, and of course, it's um, it's also the daily work we do. I heard a lot of uh, speeches here in Australia on this conference, and also from colleagues from other city councils in Australia we are basically working uh, towards the same direction there are some problems that are all over the world and it's a lot of course on human behavior on norms that we have in our society that we compare each other to our neighbors and if the neighbor has a bigger car I need maybe a bigger car people think so it's it's also about changing those norms and if you know with by accepting this 2000 watt society the people in Zurich 76.4% said yes they voted on that we want to become a, a 2000 Society. That doesn't mean that within ten years they change their norms, but yeah. I mean that would be the, the, the way to go, and we can just uh, support this. But um, let's hope we are going all in the same direction. It sounds
2: wonderful. So, just in a nutshell, what are the main things? You have public transport over uh, private cars. You have uh, solar panels, I suppose, and wind power and uh, hydropower. Well, what are the other key parts of it?
3: The key parts are really um, if we develop new areas in the city we connect energy planning and city planning we plan the houses and the apartments so that people can have a good quality of life in the city, they can work and stay in the city and spend their free time in the city and they have energy that is uh, provided locally. You mentioned it, they have uh, good public transportation. This is the, the main parts
2: for the, for the city. Okay, well, thank you very much. So that was uh, Martina Blum from Zurich.
1: Who will tell the people That free speech is a ruse The corporations run the country And then they make the news Is it media or mind control Heroic victories or crimes Who will tell the people That we're living in these times That we're living in these times That we're living in these times times.
2: I'm at University of New South Wales today and I have found a person called Gareth Johnston. His company or organisation is called We Mean Business and he's been involved with companies around the world, governments and even the Pope, all about climate adaptation and the response to climate change. Gareth, We Mean Business is your organisation. What do you do?
5: Um, I actually work for an initiative called We Mean Business which is a project um, of 32 NGOs and I'm employed by an organization called CDP, which used to be called the Carbon Disclosure Project. Um, so I engage companies over $10 billion in value, so the top table, and work with them on their carbon mitigation, their carbon plans, as well as a number of other initiatives. We use science-based targets. Uh, we have a deforestation, avoided deforestation, a deforestation commitment. Um, so I'm quite busy. I, at the moment, manage five countries and I engage mostly listed companies Uh, in those countries.
2: Why are they motivated to get their carbon footprint down?
5: Well, for many it's about um, energy saving or uh, saving of resources. Uh, For others it's reputational. Uh, But for many, climate uh, change has arrived fully, and in, since Paris, and it's a new normal. So the the day of uh, CSR being touchy feely has changed now to quant- real quantitative um, analysis and benefits for companies. And um, many large companies um, also have thousands of companies in the supply chain, and those also then are starting to respond to to the demands of a clean, low economy, low low carbon economy. Uh, and ultimately a more resilient economy.
2: Can you give us an example of that, maybe a hypothetical example of a supply chain and how it works out in this new environment, of this new normal?
5: So a company like Unilever or Mars, a large... transnationals They operate in multiple markets, uh, multiple countries, and are quite diversified. So somebody like Mars um, has obviously a confectionery business. They have a nutrition business. They have pet food. And there's multiple suppliers into those um, product lines, um, many of whom have quite serious carbon liabilities. So what are called scope three emissions, and those emissions um, are now being tackled by the parent Organization or or the client organization, because they're generally committed to a low carbon future, and often in the media here and in the political dialogue or debate, uh, we don't really see many of those good examples in Australia, but we have some. We have most of the banks in Australia starting to consider the impact of their investments. With some outstanding banks like Bank Australia. Uh, we have our main energy companies, both Origin Energy and AGL, starting to make significant commitments to both reporting on carbon and climate and also then company like Origin making significant changes to its business strategy to position itself for a low-carbon future.
2: Well, you said um, we've, we're at a conference, listeners, at, about adaptation to climate change. And you said that real adaptation to climate change will be like the Berlin Wall coming down every year, you know, and on into the future. So, a huge, massive fallout for society and for all sorts of systems. How do you help business to manage this very disruptive necessity?
5: My um, reference for Berlin was the scale of change. So, we, we need to move from a, about a 3% emissions. A reduction annually to about five if we're going to achieve a one and a half degree. Some companies are ambitious and looking at zero, uh, zero emissions by 2050, and that will require a much more radical shift. So, companies generally plan, the larger companies plan in longer term than shorter companies um, just because of their sophistication and the resources they have. A lot of companies have been criticised for 90 days of planning. But we try and get companies to think within um, uh, climate change frameworks or we change the science to help uh, companies think about climate science within their strategic plans. So it's, it's not uncommon for companies to have 20 and 25 years strategic plans, which therefore have to encompass both climate impacts and the mitigation side, the emissions reduction side.
2: I think you surprised everyone by saying you were feeling optimistic at the beginning of the session we are at. Uh, do you think this is because business do have this long-term planning, whereas governments are really locked into the electoral cycle?
5: Well, in part that, but um, CDP has an authority from nearly $100 trillion of investor uh, groups, uh, uh, or, or 870 investors equating to $100 trillion of capital wealth. And they're asking us to ask companies to disclose their climate strategies. And that data is used by the investors as well as other companies to work out how best to find those solutions. Governments, Many governments have told me that business is now leading and some of the political traps that held governments back and the short-term thinking doesn't necessarily apply to a corporate. Um, a decade ago, the big private corporates were making moves and now it's mostly and I'm seeing a lot of listed companies starting to pay attention to it. So we've managed in the run up to Paris to get 386 significant companies to make commitments on climate action. And my work this year will be helping those companies make sense of those commitments, deepening their knowledge of science based target setting, uh, working on their supply chain programs, working on educating their staff and suppliers and customers around what a low carbon future means. So that's part of my optimism. Uh, The other part is just the scale of alignment. The French did a really smart job of bottom-up um, diplomacy yeah. that built momentum, and I, I honestly don't see that momentum stopping now.
2: Well, that's very good that the momentum is going, but it's now up to countries and there's such a diversity of countries a lot of countries are very poor and they are really facing climate change like the low-lying countries like Bangladesh and um, the Pacific Islands. Uh, They're not in the same position as wealthy advanced countries like ours. Um, How do you see that happening and they can't put equal pressure either. So um, how do you see that working out in terms of climate justice?
5: Well I I work at the moment across Singapore, uh, India um, Hong Kong uh, as well as Australia and New Zealand. I have a watching brief across Pacific Islands, the multilateral banks, the governments and the policy settings. I've gone through most of the INDCs, which are the plans submitted by those uh, governments uh, to Paris. And you're right, most of the developing countries are focused heavily on adaptation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the adaptation funding is through de- uh, from developed countries so the capital flows are are, are coming in the other thing that is starting to become um, a critical issue is the transition of those developing countries economies so in many cases they're going to a clean economy model faster than australia because they don't have the impediments and barriers and obstacles and political uh, restrictions, maybe that that we've had here. So you'll start seeing a harmonisation of mitigation and adaptation in those in those markets, and cleaning up. For example, if we look at Bangladesh, the textile industry, very important sector, very big supplier of clothing to the world, has huge water impacts, both in terms of groundwater use, but also in terms of the pollution from dye works and industrial processes, back into those um, low-line um, artesian um, basin. So you'll see um, a number of uh, multilateral efforts and Australia certainly and the British governments are interested in cleaning up a lot of that, um, those supply chains. And it's done to us as consumers as well, of course, to be conscious of where things are made and, and, and what's, um, what the implications of those are.
2: Well, you, you said that Southeast Asia seems to be ahead of Australia on climate adaptation. They seem to be a lot more savvy, and there's a sort of lack of awareness here, whether through our media or through our education here, or what. But can you give us some examples of, of that sort of forward thinking where they're right
5: onto it? Well, of course, Asia's had a number of high profile climate related impacts. Um, the Bangkok floods for example, have changed a lot of the um, water management issues in Thailand, changed how infrastructure is built and designed. The other advantage that Asian economies have is they're generally younger, so they're able, again, to adopt those faster models. But they're also getting a lot of advice from multilaterals, UNDP, UNEP, UNESCAP, mm-hmm. World Bank, IFC, um, different organisations. Australia, we tend to be quite complacent here. You know, we, We've done things in a particular way. Those, those have been very Our economy's been very profitable and it's worked well under the mining boom not working so well and a lack of transition planning in australia uh, both by states and by um by governments so taking that longer view i think is a cultural issue and i find working with uh, asian companies many of them take multi-decadal or even century-long views Um, i've worked with japanese trading houses that take 170 year planning horizon yeah. I've worked with Shebol in Korea who similarly take um, 100 year horizon mm-hmm. part of that is driven by provenance and legacy and, and, rep- and face saving mm-hmm. so it's important for those companies to maintain uh, relationships with their communities we haven't really got that same view here but i am seeing some great examples of long term planning coming out of our banks coming out of our energy uh, networks and still a lot of work to do so i expect to be busy for the next 5 years uh, in australia and uh, but also enjoying enjoying the exciting opportunities that I see in Asia.
2: Well I thought you said something interesting about the Australian perspective in so far as the settler part of Australia, not the indigenous part that we, we aren't from this land we have all come from somewhere else and therefore we don't have that feeling for the climate as you said someone in, in- India on the Gangetic Plain has a sort of uh, a blood memory
5: of all those floods. Yeah I think in, in some cases, I mean I'm finding transnational companies tend to be more sophisticated they operate in multi- markets, multicultures They, by their very nature, are, by, or, or, sorry, are diverse companies with diverse cultures. Australia, we tend to have a bit of a monoculture in our business, and that's, that's changing slowly. But I tend to look at board diversity as a good indicator of, of, of risk management, and high risk management includes climate, obviously, and carbon and other risks. Um, so there's, uh, Australia, though, can adopt and adapt fast. We have a lot of uh, drivers for positive change here. And um, when business starts to get it here, we'll move faster than maybe other markets.
2: Well, this is positive. Just one last question. I'm sorry to tie you with all these questions. But you talked about um, how a lot of people expect government to do something for them and someone else, the system will have to change, but not what can I do? And it sounds like you have actually been quite independent in your life and uh, you've gone out now to the farming community. Tell us a little bit about that and what your thinking was behind and I think you said you might end up in West Bengal. Tell us what your life um, path is.
5: So I, I've been very lucky. I've worked for CSIRO. I've, I've, I've uh, worked in uh, renewable energy. I've worked in climate change modelling and impacts. I've worked for the private sector. I've even worked with the church, as, as you alluded to. i worked with a number of faith groups, um, 17 uh, different faiths, trying to find common ground on, on, on ecological world views. Um, I, took a, I took a view several years ago that um, I Needed to practice um, the academic part and return to the land. Um, my first um, academic studies were in land economics and land management. So I bought a, for- a small farm in the southern tablelands near Canberra, and I'm setting up a regional resilience centre both to practice uh, but also to give um, my family a, a sense of um, their own autonomy and their own decision making. Um, Culturally, as I said, in Australia, we tend to expect others to solve our problems. Um, so it's been an interesting experiment. Um, I'm in, entering my th- uh, uh, third year. I've had some uh, quite big drought impacts. I've lost most of the trees i planted. Uh, so this year, the planning regime and the, the the planting regime is going to accommodate climate and that variability in, in, a, in a different way. And I think through doing, we also learn and, and, and test some of those academic assumptions. Because uh, a lot of the a lot of uh, our learning is best done through failing fast and, and trying and um, Australian culture doesn't often award fail, failure. So I, I decided to buy a farm really to give my own living lab, my own um, environment and inviting local government, local community and uh, green technologists, permaculturalists, transition types, as well as others into, into that network.
2: Well, I wish you well. I think some of the nicest people on this program have been farmers, and there's quite a network of them under the radar, uh, united. I think, as you said before, through Landcare, and um, I hope you've joined their number. and Well, well done. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was um, Gareth Johnson from uh, the We Mean Business organisation speaking to me from the Climate uh, Adaptation Conference.
0: And that's it for the show tonight. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope it impels you to some sort of action in relation to stopping this catastrophic climate change uh, upon which we are headed if there is not strong action. Do anything but do something. Perhaps you could attend a great talk which is being held at the State Library in Melbourne this week. This is on Thursday. We've been plugging it for a few weeks. It's Robert Mann and Clive uh, Hamilton both luminaries in their fields. you need go. Uh, it is free but you do need to book and I'm just checking where you need to go. You can either call nine four seven nine six zero eight nine or go to trybooking.com and follow the links from there. The name of the talk is called Hope at Last, so it should be relatively easy to find. So a big thanks to the gang. That's Miwa, Teddy, our graphic designer extraordinaire. Big shout out to Teddy, Roger, Glenn and Jodie and, of course, Vivian, with who without which this show would not at all be possible. She inspires us all and you too, I hope. Stay tuned for Save Albert Park and see you next week. Bye.